Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers is on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet with clean remedies that actually work. You and your family deserve to feel your best all day, every day, which is why Beekeepers Naturals creates clean, science-backed remedies that naturally support your daily health. P.S. This is like the best time ever for me to have them as a sponsor because I am actually sick. So I am using their Bee Soothed Cough Syrup, which could not have arrived at my doorstep at a better moment um, and is amazing. And it's a truly clean cough syrup, which makes me feel so much better. It has no drugs, dyes, dirty chemicals, refined sugars, and it tastes good, which is great. I mean, I can suck it up for anything, but it happens to taste really good. a sort of a light, sweet, natural berry flavor um, and has already made my throat feel better. I also love the throat spray that they have called Propolis Throat Spray, um, sort of a daily defender um, promoting immune health and helping scratchy throats, which I have. And then there's even Bee Powered Honey, which is great, and I've been putting it in my tea today. So thank you to Beekeepers Natural. I even have my own URL, so go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash no time. That's beekeepersnaturals.com dot com slash no time and the promo code to enter is no time and o-t-i-m-e so go check it out and i'm excited to expose you to this great brand it was such a just a trip interviewing Paige Peterson for this podcast because I actually used to babysit for Paige's kids. And that was amazing. Alexander and Peter Carey, I was a summer mother's helper and babysat during the school years and just grew up with them all. So this is just a huge thrill for me to interview Paige. As an American artist, author, and photojournalist, Paige Peterson has reported extensively about the Middle East and has contributed to Marin Magazine, New York Social Diary, and the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Paige acts as the author and artist in residence at Literacy Partners and works with many organizations, including the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, the Safari Wild West Foundation, and the Huntsman Cancer Foundation and Institute, which is a leader in the study of cancer genetics. Paige is the author of Growing Up Belvedere Tiburon, the co-author with Christopher Cerf and illustrator of the best-selling children's book, Blackie, The Horse Who Stood Still, and illustrator of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, edited by Jesse Kornbluth. She is also a painter represented by Gerald Peters Gallery in New York and has been honored by the Guildhall Academy of the Arts in East Hampton. Welcome, Paige. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. This is so nice for me because you were my first boss ever. How old was I? Like 11 or something? And I babysat your kids. How how old was I? I think you were 10. Alexander was just born. Oh my gosh. And how old is she now? Well, she's 34, almost 35. Yeah, I was 10. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Oh my, it was so great. And I got to spend all those summers and watch Alexander grow up and then go to school with her. And oh my gosh. So we picked, we picked Trinity because you went there. 
I hope she liked it. We followed you. We followed you through your education. Oh, well, this is like such a coming full circle moment. And I'm so excited I can have you on the podcast. And your book is so beautiful and so beautifully written. I have to say, well, let me back up. Why don't you start by telling listeners what your book is about and what inspired you to write it? And then I will continue my raves about it. (laughs) Thank you. I was actually at dinner in New York with a friend of mine, David Patrick Columbia, who has a blog called New York Social Diary. And we were sitting together and I was just telling him what my childhood was like. And he said, oh my God, you must write about this. This is, this is incredible. So, you know, I got, the, the way I wrote this book was to get very, very quiet and to kind of channel that inner child of mine and remember what it was like to be a, a, a little girl. And so I started writing vignettes. There was, I just started writing paragraphs, nothing connected. And in the end, nothing sort of connects in the book either because it's childhood memories. And so they're just capsules of moments. But I was extraordinarily blessed. I'm 65 years old. So in 1955, I was born in Northern California. And Northern California, had, you know, just, they were still... It, Belvedere and Tiburon was still a railroad town. And so it was a, a rural, wild place. It was, it was great. So, And your book is such a great combination of your own memories about growing up there and the place itself, but also your childhood. And then so many amazing photographs that you have dug up from for the past hundred plus years, which is amazing. Yeah, we took those photographs from the Miwok Indians up. And there's an amazing history here, one that, that America should not be proud of. It's, it's what the Spaniards and the Mexicans and then the white men did to, to the American Indians is appalling. This whole peninsula that I live in, where, where I'm talking to you from, was just beautiful, peaceful land with Indians. And of course, you know, in a very short amount of time, we decimated them. Turned, you know, the, the missionaries turned them, put them in Western clothing and turned them into slaves. So it, it's really an appalling history here. But then we moved forward. So I did write about 100 years of, of history in Northern California. It, it's, it's amazing. This railroad town was an amazing place. And your childhood, like literally I was reading it and I was like, this is the, the backdrop for any movie about like <laughs> America. Do you, it's, or, or I felt like I was reading fiction, like a set for a novel or something. And I couldn't believe that's the way you grew up with like riding your bikes all day and no playdates and like just so many things that you think of as so traditional America, small town, whatever. And yet there was San Francisco, like right over the bridge too. Crazy. It, it was crazy. And you know, Sibby, I raised my kids on Central Park West and, and just the way you were raised and, and you're now raising your children. My childhood was completely so vastly different because of course our parents just sort of said make your own lunch and leave the house and it didn't matter if it was raining it didn't matter we would go to the library but we were told to go and we wouldn't come back till the 4 30 whistle blew and nobody paid any attention to us we used to take swings and swing off over the cliff nobody cared but more importantly kids didn't get hurt I think sometimes the sort of hovering things, kids aren't as, as mindful as they should be because everybody's always hovering around them. So yeah, I feel, I feel so very blessed to have been raised here. Tell me about this. You put water in the freezer and like you had, that was your water for the day. You would like take it out and wait for it to melt. <laughs> yeah, 
in a glass jar. We all did it collectively. All the kids always had a glass jar in the basket of their bikes. But, you, you know, we all used to drink out of garden hoses, which of course now we know is completely toxic and horrible to do. And I would never let my child, but we did it. We did it. We didn't have any, we weren't dependent on anyone. And by the way, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich was all one needed for nine hours. There were no such thing as snacks and it was so simple. Oh, I mean, there was part of me reading your book, just like sighing with longing. Like (laughs) why can't, as I think about like the effort it takes just for me to like get my kids to school and the 57 snacks and water bottles. And that's just to like, you know, literally cross the park, right? That's a 10 minute. I did it. I was you. I did it with, yeah, I know. (laughs) And you know, when I, when I would, you know, just preparing to get out of my apartment, I used to think, Oh my God, I cannot even believe this. My mother never did this. You know, it was a much simpler time and it was really beautiful. And you know, one of the things Zibby, we, I live on the water the Tiburon Peninsula has water on three sides of it. And I mean, there were no life jackets. There were no kids swam in the bay, kids swam in the lagoon. We were competent on boats and kayaking. There, there was no safety of any kind. There were no helmets when you rode your bike. There was nothing. I mean, it's amazing. And by the way, I don't know any kid that got hurt. I mean, there were, there were things that happened later on as teenagers, but it wasn't about playing and being free. You had this great passage, I don't know, just stayed with me, one of your many descriptive scenes that just takes the reader back. You wrote, for years, the snack bar at the club only offered bags of potato chips. After some remodeling, the menu upgraded to include grilled cheese, hot dogs, and hamburgers with chips and pickles, mayonnaise, and yellow mustard on the side, paper cups for ice water. The thin plywood changing rooms stayed the same for years, lockers and hooks for hanging wet towels, the smell of never-ending dampness. Don't we all have such memories? memory rooms, composed of tastes, smells, and textures, they stay with us always. Oh, so nice. But then later on, and maybe this goes to what you were saying about the teenage years, you write, like any town, we had our share of tragedy. What happened inside the homes of our friends was none of anyone's business. People didn't talk about their problems outside of home. Ours was a culture of silence and secrets. In the 1960s and 70s, at least eight of my friends died before the age of 20, some from drugs, some by suicide. All these decades later, when I see the parents of those children, their eyes still carry sadness. As my grandmother would wisely nod to us, there but for the grace of God go I. Hmm. Beautiful. You're a beautiful writer, and that is haunting. I mean, the culture of silence and secrets in this idyllic waterside town like what's really going on inside the homes like this is like a novel this is a novel it's like a thriller i don't know what it is it's, but. it's interesting i haven't heard, heard somebody read that before oh i was raised as an episcopalian but i went to a catholic girls school you know it's interesting of all this gang of girls one of them ended up being schizophrenic and jumped off the golden gate bridge another one died of an overdose of lsd it was in the 60s and 70s, and drugs were just being introduced to California, free love and everything else. And I think I was saved because I had a very strict mother and I was scared of her. <laughs> and so I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't, I didn't follow. I wasn't allowed to. One of the things I write about, I wasn't allowed to go to Main Street. I mean, uh, there, were, yes. there, were bound, there were definite boundaries for me. And I feel so very lucky and and as my grandmother did used to say you know there but for the grace of god go i it was so sad this is a 
Belvedere and Tiburon are two towns and it's divided by a road. It, it's, it's not unlike, you know, East Hampton, one side of the tracks to the other. And there were so many families. There was a lot of alcoholism here you know, because of cocktail parties. And this is a yachting community that involves a lot of drinking. And so I still don't know what went on behind closed doors, but a lot of it wasn't very nice. Interesting. Yeah. And sad and sad. And, and you know, the kids didn't go to psychiatrists and there wasn't much divorce. I was the product of a divorce and my parents were divorced when I was 18 months old. I mean, very, very early on in my life. But most of the people I knew in this community were married and settled and nobody took vacations because nobody had any money. We just played outside and, and we were together. But it, it, those years were complicated. I, I bet all over the world people could talk about the 60s and 70s being hard, a hard time for kids in, in some respects. Hmm. But it seems like the trade-offs, I mean, your childhood sounded just so you know, perfect. I mean, obviously not, you know, nothing is perfect, right? And who knows what, you know, maybe the secrets in your house do not want to come out either. You know what I mean? Maybe you're keeping those like locked inside. I didn't see it. I certainly didn't write about what happened inside the house. That's another book, but I want to read that book. (laughs) But outside the house, I, I think I was absolutely... I look back on my childhood with such delight. I was I was so lucky. I, I just was so fortunate. And also I was open to it and took advantage of it, you know, and and, and didn't fight any of it. And and yeah, we were big tennis players. My my mother was a a professional tennis player and that and, and that she is ninety-four and in the other room. So we were on the courts all the time playing. So th- there was an, an there was an amazing sort of structure in in that being an athlete, but then the freedom that we had I, was just amazing. And and I don't see the kids here having that freedom at all. They've always even there because now I'm feeling all guilty that I have kids in New York City. Oh no, no, the, no, no, no! What is it like for the kids growing up there now? What I have to tell you, Zippy, I loved raising my kids in New York City. They, they just had a completely different, wonderful experience. They're nannies holding their hands. They're hovering mothers. You don't see kids off on their own at all. I mean, it's just different everywhere. This idyllic time that we had. I think it was it was a capsule in time. It doesn't exist anymore, and it'll never go back. First of all, the population exploded. So we still had lots of empty lots on the island where we did box sliding and made forts and, you know, kept all our sleeping bags up there and, you know, put them under branches. And that can't happen now. We're overpopulated. There's still a sweetness to this small town, but it's different, definitely different. So what do you think that ends, do you think that yields different kids and different grown-ups? Like, what do you think the impact of that is sort of on a societal level when you have a whole generation of people who grew up with all this independence? And now, obviously, we have these kids who, you know, we have to buckle up six ways and sideways just to get, you know, around the block in the car seats and everything. So what what do you think? Like, what type of society does that lead to? Oh, that's a really good question, Sibby. I'm glad I'm not raising kids now. I'm I'm sorry. I just think it's so hard. It's so hard now. I don't know. What do you think? I just think that it dovetails with the increased anxiety everybody has, right? I mean, everybody, kids feel that we're so wary of everything that goes on around them. And so I think that it creates 
a population of kids who are not as inherently sort of brave and bold to go forth, that they're, you know, always looking behind them. And maybe that has some benefits as well. I mean, you know, we like to believe in the sense of control and everything, but I don't know. I mean, I look at you and I remember when I used to babysit and you were always painting these amazing things and you were just so like cool. Not that you aren't anymore, but I just thought you were like the most amazing woman and so creative. And now you've written like your book about Blackie. You've already written a children's book and now this beautiful (laughs) book. No, you're just like, you you had your own, you like beat to your own drummer much more so than most people I feel like in that I grew up with knowing. Thank you. And I, I, I you know, something, I didn't have any information when I was a kid. There was no information. So did you go to, did you go to school? That like (laughs) I most definitely went to school. Okay, good. All right. There, you know, I mean, we're stating the obvious, right? There were no computers. There were no phones. I mean, that kind of information. Our lives were so simple and small. And parents didn't talk to kids. In those days, it was completely... I mean, I remember being told once, I was horrified not by it, not by my mother, but I was told, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. We didn't have the kind of information that our kids have now. And I think that creates more anxiety for children. Are you close to your mother now? Like, what's your relationship like? Oh, I have a wonderful relationship with her. And she's at the end of her life, 94. She's still full of pep. She was a two-term mayor here in Belvedere, so she's very political. But my mother was a working person. And so she didn't have that much time to fool around with us. I mean, she played sports with us and she was a wonderful mother. But when I look at how interactive the parents are with the kids, I just think, oh my gosh, give them some space. You know, I don't think children need to have as much information as they're getting. One of the things I did is that I just had endless hours of daydreaming And I liked to paint when I was a little girl. And so I had that. I didn't have a scheduled time. Even after school, there was freedom to do nothing. And out of that nothingness came, for me, creativity. And that I started painting when I was was very young. And I didn't didn't think anything was impossible. And then when I started reading, you know, I thought, oh, oh. I want to be Gertrude Stein, but I don't want Alice B. Toklas, but I want Gertrude Stein's life. I want to be surrounded with writers and painters and creative people. And I was very attracted to that kind of world. That's where my creative brain was. So I was always painting and writing, not necessarily reading. I was an action person. I was raised in Belvedere, Tiburon with Anne Lamont, who's was a childhood friend. Annie always had a book in her hand. I never did. I was, you know, finding things and making things. I was much more sort of into being, you know, more creative. I saw her quote at the end, and I hope that, you know, I read your book online in the PDF you sent me, so I'm hoping that the final copy has this on the cover or yes, something. Yes, it does. It's- 
Okay, good. All right, great. Well, it says, I love this new book by Paige Peterson and the Belvedere Tiburon Landmark Society. Always amazing and meticulous in its discovery and preservation of historical photographs, the Landmark Society has found the perfect narrator for this new collection. Paige is both precise and charming in capturing the wild and natural beauty of our shared childhoods and habitats in Belvedere and Tiburon in the 50s and 60s. She extols the days of getting on our bikes after breakfast and not coming home till dinner, covered in blackberry juice and dirt, scratches and bliss. This combined effort brought me in nostalgia and cheer oh, and oh, Annie. yeah i was very touched by that i was t- well we led we had the same childhood we had exactly the same i mean she was a great tennis player we all played tennis all the time together she was so much smarter than i was oh my goodness she was <laughs> so much smarter but you know she always had a book in her, in her hand uh, you know when you when you started this blog i used to think about annie because whenever and also zibby you were always reading I remember you as a teenager always reading. As a little girl, you always brought a book with you. So this is innately within you. I was not a reader. I was a painter. And I was, uh, you know, the other thing I used to do is that I used to make forts. And then I would make houses and playhouses. And I was much more sort of out there creating things than I was reading. And And I am trying to catch up with that now. I read more now. But, you know, Annie was great. But yes, you were reading all the time. (laughs) I think I was trying to think about something. On your 12th birthday, I gave you a book by, he was a Lebanese poet. Heal Gibran? Yes. Yes. I loved that book. Yes. The Prophet. Because I ended up quoting from it in my bat mitzvah speech the next year. (laughs) That's right. In fact, if you gave me enough time, I would get up and start looking for it because I know that I still have it. So I'm going to go search. If it's not in this room, it might still be at my mom's. So I will find it. But I loved that. I loved it. But, but that's, what, that's what, in thinking about you and loving you, I, I remember thinking, what, what, can I, what can I do for Zibby? And I thought, oh God, she loves to read. This is sort of out of the wheelhouse, right? It was, it was just something different that I had been impacted with, but it's wonderful. Well, there you go. It's like the power of a book. I mean, that book has stayed with me ever since. That's the best gift you could have given me. Plus you gave me a painting of yours and I had it like (laughs) hanging in my room for years. So yeah, those are the gifts that have true meaning. It's, um, you know, imagine if you had given me like an LOL doll and, you know, (laughs) or whatever our kids are getting now. So, oh, well, thank you. You know, this conversation has made me feel better too, because I've been doing a lot more work lately. You know, I'm on my computer more and I'm around the kids. Like I usually have my laptop upstairs and the kids just play, right? They play and they draw and they just like do whatever, but I'm not like on the floor with them anymore. And that's in part because they're older, right? And I'm talking about my little guys, not my teenagers, but you know, I put them to bed last night and I was thinking to myself like, oh God, I worked so much today. Like I was next to them all day, but like, I, you know, and they would like jump on my lap and I'd kiss them and they'd run and then they'd go do their own thing again. But I was like, I didn't really spend that much time on the floor with them or, you know, except for like the three hours in the morning when they got up at the crack of dawn and we were like baking together and whatever. Like once the work day started, I was like focused and I felt so guilty when I went to kiss them at night. And I was like, oh, I was such a bad mom today. Like I- Actually, you were a great mom today to just be present and let them be. I see. I think that's the best. That's what my mother was like too, because she worked. She had a retail store and she, she also was in politics. So she was available, but she wasn't on us. 
And I think that's a gift. So what you did today was great. It, it lets them figure it out themselves. I think we we have, I see these parents and I want to say, leave that kid alone. <laughs> figure it out. My mom would always say to me, Zibby, benign neglect. Yes. You know, like, because I was like on top of my twins when they were little, like literally just like a hawk, like watching them as they scampered, you know, every single second. She's like, it's okay. You know, and then I watch like home movies where my mother is like, you know, laying on a lounge chair by the pool, you know, smoking with her long red fingernails, smoking her vantage lights with like little eye, plastic eye protectors so she didn't get a tan around her eyes. And you see it, like my brother and me almost like falling in the pool. And then fortunately, like a babysitter might sweep in and save us or something. And, and now she's like, you know, I don't understand what you're doing, <laughs> the way you parent. So anyway. That's really funny. Uh, that's really good. Yeah, different times, yeah, different, different times. times. But I think, yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you're giving your kids space to just be themselves. And I I loved I loved one of the things that I did with my kids. I painted with my kids a lot, and I was always doing their homework. They were Trinity kids. God only knows we were always doing homework, but we used we worked side by side, not necessarily integrated, you know, but side by side. So good for you. I applaud you. Oh, thank you. Well, Paige, this has been so nice, like just so meaningful and so warm and loving. And I'm just so happy we got to do this. And I'm so proud of you for your latest book. It's great. And joins Blackie on my shelf. So congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you so much, honey. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's my pleasure. All right. right. Bye. Enjoy. Enjoy now that I know where you are, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm jealous. All right. (laughs) All right. Bye, Paige. Love you, honey. Love you. Thanks so much to Beekeepers Naturals for helping me through a sick day with the amazing cough syrup and um, cough spray, throat spray that you have. And thanks for helping all my listeners. Beekeepersnaturals.com slash no time, promo code no time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.